Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mind the Teacher, a podcast miniseries where we are going to explore mental health in schools, the mental health of teachers, what affects mental health, the consequences of poor mental health or burnout among teachers, among parents, among students in schools. We're going to focus on teachers, though, because teachers are the most important part of a good school. And teaching's a tough job. It's long been known to be a tough job. And it's gotten even tougher in the past few years due to the pandemic, due to some contentious presidential elections. And we're going to dive in and really try to get to the root of what the problems are and hopefully what some solutions are. And by identifying the problems and where they arise and, and how they manifest, Hopefully, we can talk about some feasible, practical solutions at all different levels, at the school level, at the district level, and even at the state and federal policy level. So before we dive in too much, let me introduce myself. I'm Seth Gershenson. I'm an associate professor in the School of Public Affairs at American University. But I'm joined with my good friend and longtime collaborator, Steve Holt. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Glad we're able to do this and excited to get started. But why don't you tell the people who you are and what type of work you do? So I'm Steve Holt. I'm an assistant professor in the Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy at the University at Albany, which is a, a campus with SUNY. And a lot of my work is thinking about teachers in particular and how teacher performance shapes outcomes for students, behaviors for students, and outcomes for communities more broadly. Right. And a lot of that research really just hammers home the point of how important teachers are, right? Teachers teachers are fundamentally important. We all sort of intuitively know this, and the research bears it out as well. And of course, just like any profession, if you're stressed out, if you're feeling burned out, that's going to detract from your performance. And so poor mental health and, and burnout among teachers has long been cause for concern. But in this podcast, we're going to try to translate some of that research from academia for regular people, for teachers, principals, superintendents, policymakers, and so on, and really try to get a sense of what researchers mean when they talk about mental health and also how mental health affects all of us on a personal level. And we're going to do this over the course of a five-episode mini-series. This is the first of five episodes where we're going to talk to experts from a variety of disciplines about mental health and teachers and try to shine a spotlight on mental health in schools. Right. And while we do that, we're going to try and grapple with mental health because, as you'll hear throughout the series, despite there being this kind of increasing recognition that good mental health requires the same sustained work and focus and good daily practices that physical health does. You know, we when we're trying to get back in shape, we try and get into good habits in, in what we eat and how we exercise. Well, our mental health, there's a growing recognition that our mental health requires similar sustained practices and focus. But policymakers and school leaders dedicate a lot less attention and fewer resources to maintaining good health, mental health practices in their schools, among teachers, and among the students and parents that make up the kind of broader school communities. Right. And part of that might be due to stigma, which is something we're going to talk about with our first guest today. But yeah, exactly. the good news is that there's increasing attention and recognition of the importance of mental health in all walks of life, not just in schools. And so hopefully this podcast miniseries can sort of be a, a multiplier to get the word out. And it's particularly important in schools because yep. teachers don't just affect themselves. There are spillover costs that we'll, we'll talk about throughout the series to students and, Absolutely. and other members of the school community. Yep. So like I said, this is the first of five episodes. Each is going to be a little less than an hour or so, you know, in the, I don't know, 45 to 50 minute range, probably. We also have a nice website on American University's website under the podcast title, Mind the Teacher. 
And there we will link to bios of many of our guests, to some of the research studies we mentioned, to some further reading if you're interested. So definitely check that out. We'll also put up transcripts of the podcasts. And most exciting, we're going to be updating it live as the episodes release. And so there will be an opportunity there for you to reach out and talk to us, to post questions on a message board and so on. So hopefully this will be an interactive experience and, and we look forward to learning from you all as well. So where are we headed over the next hour in this first episode, Steve? So we're going to open the series with a, a broad introduction to mental health concepts and research as it applies to, to all people generally. As you said earlier, mental health is not just something that affects teachers. It's not something that just affects schools. It's something that affects all of us. So we are going to start by just introducing how researchers think about mental health, how they define mental health, and some of the broader research findings on why mental health is important. I should also say this podcast, the idea for this podcast, really grew out of some of our own research on teachers' mental health and how that's changed over time and how that compares to professionals and other occupations. And that research was funded by the Spencer Foundation. The Spencer Foundation is, I guess, a little over 50 years old now, and they've been funding education research exclusively for the majority of that time. Their website is www.spencer.org if you want to check them out and check some of their funded research out. And they're really all about recognizing the importance of education and finding ways to improve education. And recently, they did something really cool, I think. They released or piloted what they're calling the Research Communication Grant Program, And the idea there is to support communication and dissemination and outreach efforts that make the research that they fund and and all the research out there accessible to the public audience, the schools, the community, parents, students, make it accessible to the people and stakeholders that need it and can actually benefit from it. It's a super interesting idea because, you know, too often there's kind of a disconnect between a lot of both popular discourse, but also the information that policymakers and practitioners are operating on in a day to day is just sometimes hard to hunt down. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of research that really good research produced by people like the Spencer Foundation, by academics across the country that just can't get into the right hands because it's sometimes paywalled, sometimes just buried in obscure academic journals, obscure to the public. Uh, Written in (laughs) jargon, right? Hard. So we are trying to break that barrier, break that wall, and make this very relevant research known to all and available to all. Right. And so big thanks to the Spencer Foundation for helping us do that and for providing this opportunity to do that. Yes, yes, big thanks. So we're going to raise awareness of the costs and the consequences of mental health problems in schools, and most importantly, some fixes and solutions that are tangible, practical, feasible to resolve those problems and make life easier for teachers, make life better for students, and really ensure that that all students can max out on their potential And there's huge potential of a quality education. But for policymakers to think through kind of potential resources and programs for mental health maintenance in schools, we do think it's important to have a solid understanding of what mental health is, what it means to maintain good mental health, and why it's important for policymakers to get this right. What are the costs of mental health? What does it cost both individuals and cost society? Right. And also, how do we identify it? Right? How do we know right. when exactly. someone's struggling and so on? A, exactly. a lot of times it, it can be an invisible problem. And by the time it becomes visible, things are pretty bad. So to that end, I am going to talk to Dr. Daniel Eisenberg of UCLA and Dr. Barbara Biasi of Yale about some of the research on mental health broadly. Professor Eisenberg is a psychologist. Professor Biasi is an economist. They both study mental health similar topics, but from very different perspectives. And I'm looking forward to these conversations. And and I think they're going to sort of set a great base for our discussion over the next few episodes. 
So yep. let's get Professor Eisenberg on the line. Hi, everybody. I am very happy today to have Daniel Eisenberg on the show. He is a professor of public policy and management in the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA. His broad research goal is to improve the understanding of how to invest effectively in the mental health of young people. As part of that mission, he directs the Healthy Minds Network for Research on Adolescent and Young Adult Mental Health. A link to the center's website is on the podcast site, www.healthymindsnetwork.org. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And you're a natural guest to help kick off this first podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And as an expert in mental health and as someone who works with improving the mental health of young people, I think a natural place to start is to ask what do you mean by mental health? Well, not just you. What do people mean when they talk about mental health? How do we define mental health? What does that look like in, in your view? Yeah, that's a great place to start. Actually, when I teach a mental health policy course, that's exactly where we start. We spend a whole session talking about this. So there are a, okay. lot, of, a lot of definitions of mental health, and there's a lot of different ways to look at it. So I advocate for a broad definition of mental health, and this is what the World okay. Health Organization also advocates for. So it's not just about, for example, depression and anxiety. It's not just about difficult and negative feelings or feeling sad or anxious, mm -hmm. but it's also about the positive side. So, so mental health is a continuum from severely distressed all the way to what was often called flourishing or thriving, like really positive mental health. Another way to think about mm -hmm. it is that mental health at its most basic is how people are feeling. Okay. But, but it's not just feeling happy or sad or anxious or calm, but also it's how people are feeling about their role in society. So uh, mm -hmm. do they have a sense of purpose? Do they feel like they're contributing? Do they feel like they have meaningful relationships? There's many dimensions to mental health, and those are just some of the most basic ones. Yeah. I think right off the bat, you hit two important things that might be overlooked. The first was that, you know, mental health is a continuum, like you said, and we can have really fantastic mental health, just like we can have poor mental health. I think a lot of the news focuses on people feeling blue or stressed and, and the negative aspects, but, you know, just like physical health, it's important to think and recognize that we can also like feel really good and, and, and that's important and something to strive for. The other thing you mentioned is which I think is important, uh, especially in today's world and today's climate, is having a sense of purpose. That's another dimension of mental health, I guess, I hadn't thought much about. I, too, I guess, think a lot about, you know, are you feeling stressed or not? Are you feeling happy or not? Okay, so now that we have a rough idea of, like, what we mean by mental health, what do we know about the determinants of mental health? How does our household environment, our work environment, our day-to-day -day life how does that shape mental health and what other things affect mental health? <laughs> so the, the short answer is everything. Everything mm -hmm. affects mental health. And it's what makes it so interesting and important to study as a researcher. But also, if you're a teacher or a principal or, or just a parent uh, mm -hmm. or a community member, it's relevant to your life and to your job. It's relevant to everything. That said, there are certain things that seem to be most important for mental health that really stand out. And we know for sure that mental health is a reflection of our biology to some degree. There's genetic mm -hmm. vulnerabilities for a number of mental health conditions. But even more importantly, it's a function of our environment. And so our social environment, our relationships, whether we mm -hmm. have meaningful connections with other people, whether we feel like we're getting support from our family and our friends, those are really important for mental health. There's also individual, sometimes it's called resilience or coping skills. There are individual skills that we can have that can help buffer us against challenges and, and support our mental health in difficult or challenging times. That's what a lot of the social and emotional learning, the SEL movement and education okay. is about, as you know. And those skills are, um, yeah. are learnable, they're obtainable. Yes. And, and okay, so we'll, we'll probably circle that back to yeah, that when sure. we talk about like interventions and, and yeah. that's like a concrete way to improve mental health. Right, yeah. Just to, okay, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you gave a good answer 
and an honest answer, which is everything affects it. <laughs> but I'll push a little bit. Do yeah. some aspects of our daily lives affect it more than others? Or, sure. or are there like particular mm-hmm. circumstances or situations we should be on the lookout for? Yeah. I think, uh, so first of all, in terms of what affects it the most, I would, if I had, had to list like a top five or so, so social relationships, right? It's okay. de- definitely in the top tier. Also, our level of physical activity, if we're okay, most people, and, and there's lots of variety across individuals, some people maybe mm-hmm. can be totally fine being sedentary 24 seven, but most of us need mm-hmm. some physical activity to kind of stimulate our bodies and, and actually, yeah. and in turn our minds. Mm-hmm. So that's another important thing. Our sleep, it's again, yep. mo- most people, some of us can get by with, with unhealthy sleep patterns, but most mm-hmm. of us, if we're really tired consistently, we're not getting enough sleep, then that is going to detract from mental health and it's going to raise the risk of depression and anxiety. So those okay. are a few of the big ones. And of course, there's, yeah. there's mental health treatments, which we can get into that also can be beneficial. Um, yeah. th- those are some of the basics that, that contribute to mental health. Again, I think it's important to note that several of those are, are I don't know what I would call lifestyle yeah. type decisions or things like exercise. And those are decisions that we make to some extent. And in, in some ways, it's a little bit might be out of our control how much we can sleep and what our sleep schedule is. But mm-hmm. okay. So all this stuff affects mental health and it's on a continuum. So everybody everybody has mental health, right? We can we can imagine measuring every person in the world's mental health and some's going to be better than others. With that in mind, what are some common warning signs that you might want to pay attention to in yourself and in the people close to you that there might be some distress or, or some problem? Well, just as sleep contributes to mental health, it also reflects mental health. So okay. when we are struggling with our mental health, then we often have trouble sleeping or we may be sleep more than usual. That can sometimes be a sign of depression. Okay. Um, so so a, basically a change, a significant change, change in sleep yeah. patterns. And that's actually the, gen- the general theme is looking for significant changes not every change, of course, is a negative thing or, or reflects poor mental health, but changes right. in sleep patterns, loss of appetite or change in appetite, it's kind of some basic symptoms of depression and anxiety, like feeling nervous or irritable very frequently for a sustained period. So not just one day, but most days over a multi-week period, that would be an indicator potentially of significant anxiety. Or, or depression, feeling not just sad in a moment, in a day, but feeling consistently sad over a longer period. Or and, and another key indicator is, is um, losing interest or having less interest in our usual activities, the usual things that give us pleasure. If we or someone we know seems like they're just not enjoying things like they normally do, again, that's a, a sign that something may be going on that, that might uh, require some attention. Okay. And a lot of those things are, are plausibly recognizable to you in yourself. What about things that you might see in a peer and a colleague and a friend and a family member? Is there anything there that m- might make you worried about them or, or feel like you might want to say something? And if so, what would you say? What would you do to help them? Yeah. Well, so I think all of the things I mentioned are things to look for in our people around us. And another thing, of course, which is even perhaps the most concerning situation is when there's a indication that someone might be thinking of or actually taking steps to hurt themselves. And so whether if people talk about that they might be better off dead or they're having thoughts of taking their own life, that's to be taken seriously. And it's a clear indication that somebody is struggling. And sometimes it's tempting to just write it off because it's too, either because we think someone might not be serious or we think, or it's too painful to think about the possibility that it is serious. But of course, the stakes are so high. It's important to have the conversation to not, I think confront is the wrong word because it's, you don't want it to be confrontational, but it's to, mm-hmm. to show clearly that you are concerned and that you, 
want to support the person in your life and that you just want to hear more about how they're doing and then encourage them to actually get professional help just to make sure that they're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And are there particular groups for whom these mental health issues are possibly most important? We said everybody has mental health and can struggle with mental health, Mm -hmm. but given, you know, our focus generally here on schools and students and teachers and and your focus and your work on young people are there particular groups that are extra vulnerable well i mean there's certainly on a population level there are some groups that have higher prevalence or you know higher rates of certain mental health concerns or higher suicide rates so there i mean there are some differences by gender and certainly uh young people and people in general who identify as part of the LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. uh, group are generally experiencing higher rates of distress. But that said, again, I, I keep coming back to the idea that mental health is a universal, universally important phenomenon. And mm-hmm. that I, I think the similarities are are greater than the differences, in other words. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I think while maybe we need to devote more attention and resources overall to certain groups, in terms of yeah. support, we need to be careful not to generalize. And, and you know, just because somebody belongs to a particular group doesn't mean mm-hmm. that they are or, or are not experiencing s- significant mental health issues because every group has high numbers of people who are struggling right. with their mental health. Yeah, so that, I mean, that aligns with what Steve and I find in, in our study of the NLSY survey, which is a nationally representative survey of uh-huh. uh, individuals in the U.S., and what we do there, among other things, is we compare the observed mental health markers of teachers to observationally similar non-teachers, and we find actually pretty similar patterns and pretty similar results. So it's not that teachers don't have high stress and high pressure and, and various mental health problems. They do, yeah. but so does everyone else. And so that's a good point to keep in mind is that some groups might be marginally more affected than others, but this is really a a universal phenomenon, like you said. I do want to say, though, we spent the past year or so with varying levels of lockdowns and quarantines and isolation from family and fear about the health of our loved ones, for many people, the loss of loved ones during this global pandemic. This does seem like a different time than five or ten years ago with regards to mental health. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, first of all, there were some clear trends happening even before the pandemic. So okay, uh, it was clear a variety of national data sets in the U.S. have shown that adolescents in the United States were experiencing or at least reporting much higher prevalence of distress both depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and behavior. For example, as of 2018 and 2019, as compared to 10 years prior. And now during the pandemic, it's actually, it's been a little hard to make sense of the data so far during the pandemic, because there are some studies and some data sets that suggest an additional surge in distress among young people and in the general adult population as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, last week I saw a new study it's based on a national data set that showed a quadrupling of reported mental health struggles, basically, mm-hmm. among the general adult population in the U.S. during the pandemic as compared to before. I've also, But I've seen other data suggesting that it's really kind of more a continuation of the previous trend. My overall take on the pandemic is that it's been a, a wildly varying experience across individuals and families. So mm-hmm. and I think we can all relate to this in the people that we know in our own lives that some people have done okay and actually kind of the calm, if albeit maybe a little bit boring life of being locked down was okay for in terms of mental health, even though it wasn't, it wasn't great mm-hmm. in every respect for other people. Right. It's, it's been traumatic and, and, you know, and they've had yep. loved ones who have passed away um, mm-hmm. and other people have lost jobs. So right. again, again, we, you know, we can't generalize for the entire population and clearly mm-hmm. there are some new stressors that have caused a lot of problems for people in terms of mental health during the pandemic. Right. I mean, a lot of that variability 
comes back to do you have the material resources to sort of be comfortable at home for a while as well as what your employment situation was with regards to was working from home feasible were your hours and pay changing a lot uh-huh. so i mean it seems like a lot of those things are going to be highly correlated with how you or how your mental health held up during the pandemic yeah and right. i haven't and i haven't yeah. seen data yet that have really explored the inequalities in across socioeconomic uh, mm-hmm. lines in terms of mental health during the pandemic but that absolutely makes sense right and yeah. i won't be surprised to see data confirming it mm-hmm. and speaking of measuring mental health how do we measure mental health in surveys and and i maybe i should say how well do we measure it and part of the reason i ask is that even though it might be getting better i think there's still some stigma about admitting to mental health issues to a surveyor yeah so what role does stigma play here not just in measurement but also in in i guess getting treatment ultimately yeah well first in terms of measurement i you're absolutely right that that's a concern because mental health is with very few exceptions in terms of how we measure it it's almost always a self-reported phenomenon and it makes sense because it, it's trying to kind of capture our subjective experience in life how are we feeling and only we can you know as individuals can report on that mm-hmm. there are some kind of biological correlated factors that sometimes are used as indicators of stress but really mental health and its more greater complexity is almost always self-reported and so for example a brief screen for depression would ask about like in the past couple of weeks have you felt down depressed or sad frequently or how frequently have you felt that way and how frequently have you felt hopeless about the future mm-hmm. so that typically there's screens that ask about some core features or symptoms of a mental health condition but yeah i think that there's a question about when we look at these trends over time and this increase in reported distress by young people i and many others do wonder is that apparent increase at least in part reflecting that young people are more open about reporting that they're struggling or more likely to kind of identify with the language that we're asking in these screens and that, and that's really difficult to tease apart for sure and then you asked about stigma and help seeking actually i would say that's we tend to talk about the bad news typically when we're talking about mental mm-hmm. health and the trends but actually it does seem like in the population particularly young people stigma or the kind of negative attitudes related to mental health and help seeking has diminished and again young people mm. are more comfortable talking about mental health than they ever have been before and they're more energized to do something about mental health more knowledgeable so so i think that's led to increased help seeking increased willingness to seek help increased willingness to reach out or to tell say that we're struggling mm-hmm. and that's an asset that we can leverage in schools and other settings to support yeah. young people cool well that's super helpful and informative I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and giving us some food for thought about what mental health is, how we measure it, you know, the things that affect it. Is there any last last words or, or last ideas you want to end on? <laughs> well, I just want to thank you, Seth, for having me and, and thank you for taking on, for shining a light on this important topic. Sometimes mental health is, as I said before, kind of a separate topic, but I think mm-hmm. that you're helping to bring it into the mainstream conversation of education and that that's important that i think is a key aspect of how we will continue Mm -hmm. to reduce stigma is to show that it's central to the success of our schools yep well said well thanks again we've been talking to daniel eisenberg who's a professor of health policy and management in the fielding school of public health at ucla he also directs the healthy minds network for research on adolescent and young adult mental health, which we'll link to on the website. We'll link to some of his other research and some of the interventions and studies that he mentioned in our conversation. So thanks again for chatting with us today. All right. Thank you. Our next guest is Professor Barbara Biasi. She is an assistant professor of economics in the Yale University School of Management. She's also a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, or NBER. 
Her research focuses on a variety of topics regarding education and human capital development and, and labor market outcomes. We're bringing her on the show to talk about one particular paper I'll talk about in a second. But first, Dr. Biasi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad you're able to come on the show. And I think I have a few questions I'm really curious to discuss with you. Your work's really fascinating. You look at mental health and the career effects of mental health. Before we get into your study, though, what did we know about this issue before you started your research? What did we know about the, I guess, short and longer term impacts of mental health on individuals' careers, their work life, their economic well-being and that sort of thing. Yeah, so just like physical health, we know that mental health can mm -hmm. have uh, pretty dramatic effects on people's lives more generally, but more specifically also mm -hmm. on their career and labor market outcomes. For example, we know that people with certain types of mental health conditions tend to have more fragile families, they are way more likely to be on disability or on different types of welfare programs. They tend to uh, okay. be less likely to be employed, so to actually have a, a job, and they tend to mm -hmm. earn less. And all of those things are disruptive to families, potentially disruptive to children and, and children's schooling. And they can also maybe feed back to mental health. So mental health can affect those important outcomes, but then if you lose your job or, or other things, that can sort of have a multiplier effect it, on your it, mental health. Is that? Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. So there's two uh, important points that you're raising. One is the fact that I have a mental health condition and my labor market outcomes and my earnings and, and my take up of welfare programs are somehow worse can also have an impact on the other members of my family and in particular my children. Mm -hmm. And so there can be yep. uh, kind of intergenerational consequences of untreated mental health conditions. There is also one okay. other aspect, which is the fact that not only mental health conditions can have a negative impact on people's careers, they can also be triggered by negative shocks to people's lives more broadly, but also to their careers. So bad things happening on the job can also be what causes mental health conditions, which can right. create a vicious cycle that mm -hmm. and then, then it becomes very difficult for people to escape if there is no treatment. Right. It reminds me of the poverty trap. Exactly. It's very similar problem. to that. Yep. And it also makes it challenging for researchers like you to tease out the effect of mental health on career outcomes separate from the effect of something bad happening at work. It does. On your mental health. It yeah. does. It does. A and you tackle those problems to some extent in a very important and very interesting new NBER working paper called Career Effects of Mental Health. This is co-authored with Michael Dahl and Petra Moser. Um, it's available on the NBER website, and we'll post a link to it on the podcast website for readers who might want to look in a little more detail. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that study? I know you're looking at, at mental health diagnoses of depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, and you're using pretty rich administrative data from Denmark to look at the impact of those diagnoses on careers. What do you find there? Yeah. So the goal of that project is, I would say, twofold. The first one is to use okay. really rich administrative data from the country of Denmark, which makes available to researchers a variety of data sets that are sort of generated by the public administration and to link one with the other. And in particular, because of this, we are able to link individual level information on people's medical histories, think about diagnoses, mm -hmm. prescriptions of different types of drugs with people's uh, mm -hmm. labor market outcomes. So people's earnings, as well as people's jobs, occupations, which firms they, they work, as well as take up of disability and other welfare programs. So we have really, really rich information at the individual level on the population mm -hmm. of Denmark. We wanted first okay. to leverage such rich data set to quantify more carefully what are the penalties that are associated mm -hmm. with different types of mental health conditions. And we decided to focus on right. these three conditions, 
not to be, you know, by any means comprehensive of all the set of mental health conditions that people have, we decided to pick conditions that are a little bit different from each other in terms of how common they are in the population and also how severe the symptoms that they usually bring really are and the way that they impact people's lives. And we chose depression, for example. It's it's a condition that is extremely common. I think the National Institute of Mental Health reports or estimates that approximately 20% of all Americans have ever experienced depression at least once in their lifetime. So this is a very, very common Mm -hmm. type of condition. And symptoms are, you know, negative feelings, uh, sadness, a loss of interest in activities, uh, loss of energy. So those are the types of conditions which mm-hmm. are severe, but if you will, less severe than other types of conditions, such as, for example, schizophrenia, which is at the other end of what we want to consider. Schizophrenia is a much more okay. rare condition. It affects approximately 1% of the population across different countries. It varies a little bit, but it's okay. that rare. And it's instead characterized by much more severe symptoms, uh, which might sometimes include hallucinations, a decrease in the ability to speak or think straight or initiate plans or express Mm -hmm. emotions. So these are much more impairing symptoms, if you will. So we wanted to get, you know, to look at different types of conditions and estimate the penalties in terms of various outcomes that relate to people's careers. And so in the first part of the paper, in fact, we do just this. We just compare people that have each one of these conditions as measured by the diagnosis that they receive by their physicians and the rest of the population. Uh And what we see is that people with each one of these three conditions, depression, bipolar disorder is the one that I haven't talked about, but it's also one that we consider, and then schizophrenia, they earn substantially less than the rest of the population. The gaps Uh are in the range of 35% less for depression and, and bipolar disorder, to 75% less for schizophrenia. So pretty large gaps. Those are real large. They are really large, yeah. To put it in in context, just imagine getting a 35% raise at the end of the year or a 65% raise at the end of the year. Yeah, they're gigantic Um, gaps. That's a huge, yeah. And you mentioned the earnings effect. What other outcomes do you look at and and what do you find in terms of other career-type outcomes? We look at different types of outcomes. We look at, uh, so the, the earnings penalties that I just mentioned are for people who have a job. So we restrict our attention to people who are working in each year. But we also look Mm -hmm. at the probability that people don't earn anything in any particular year, which we take as a proxy for people not working. And we also see very, very large penalties there. People who have mental health conditions are more than half as likely to be employed in any given year than people who instead do not have these types of conditions. So very, very large gaps there which again seem to suggest Mm -hmm. that these conditions might make people so sick that they are unable to either work at all or to hold on to a job. One other thing that we see where we really see gigantic gaps is the probability of receiving disability payments in every year, which we call in the paper the risk of disability. There we see that, for example, people with bipolar disorder with depression are one and a half times more likely to be on disability than the rest of the population in any given year. And people with schizophrenia Mm -hmm. are close to four times more likely to be on disability in any given year. So these people are enormously more likely to have this, to face this risk, the risk of not being able to work and having to rely on these types of payments instead. We also briefly looked at other types of welfare programs. We see gaps that are still very large somehow smaller than the risk of disability. We've looked at things like pensions and unemployment insurance, and we see something there as well. But where we see really the biggest gaps is the the risk of disability. And this is consistent with Mm -hmm. with previous studies that had also found that mental health conditions are one of the leading causes of the risk of disability, even in in the US. So the takeaway from all that seems to be there's really big social costs of mental health in terms of the spending and and support that goes to those types of disability payments. But there's also really big personal costs to individual households in terms of of the earnings penalty. So there's these dual costs And that's not even mentioning the intergenerational aspect you mentioned of of how family members and children can be affected. So this is a real problem, mental health. And I think your work 
shows that and and highlights just how big of a of a problem it is. I want to talk about the policy implications and, and what we should be thinking about to try to mitigate the problems caused by mental health. It might be a little bit hard to extrapolate the results from the study to other countries that instead don't have universal health care, such as the U.S., but if anything, they seem to suggest that the benefits from providing people access to treatment for mental health conditions could be even bigger uh-huh. in countries that don't, don't have universal health care. There is one part of, of our study, which I didn't have time to mention, which is a, a part where we focus on bipolar disorder and we actually try to estimate the effect of obtaining access to treatment on people's mm-hmm. uh, career outcomes. And we do that by exploiting the fact that the primary treatment for a bipolar disorder, which is lithium, was introduced in the pharmaceutical market in Denmark in 1976. And so we're able to essentially compare cohorts that had exposure or had the possibility of taking lithium at age 20, which is the typical age at onset for bipolar disorder, because they were in a, co- in a kind of earlier, younger cohort versus people mm-hmm. who did not have access to lithium when they were age 20. And what we see is that the younger right. cohorts have much better outcomes. And I'm talking about people with a, bi- a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, which we interpret as yeah. treatment really having a big impact on closing these gaps. The bottom line of this being that access to treatment is really important to mitigate this yeah. really, really big costs associated with mental health conditions. And of course, we can put a number on bipolar disorder. We can't necessarily extrapolate mm-hmm. the same numbers for things like depression or schizophrenia, but it would be hard for me to imagine a world where access to treatment for those conditions didn't matter. It's just that we don't have the exact number mm-hmm. yet. But this is just to go back to uh, the point that you were raising before. If we do find that access to treatment matters in a country where healthcare is universal, it's probably going to matter even more in a country where Mm -hmm. healthcare is instead not universal. And so I think this is important to keep in mind when interpreting our results. Above and beyond that, I feel like, you know, Denmark is small, but it does resemble a lot of other European countries, which also have universal okay. healthcare. So I think in spite of the yeah. fact that we are using this small country as a sort of laboratory to learn something about the cost of mm-hmm. mental health and the benefits of treatment, we can, with some caveats, extrapolate from these results to learn lessons that could be useful for other contexts as well. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I fully agree that it's super important that you're able to document that treatment actually matters and treatment can make a difference. And I also think that the point is very well taken that if the treatment matters in a country with a pretty good public healthcare system, treatments are going to be at least as effective, if not more effective in countries with less equal access to healthcare. So that's one thing then I guess that policymakers should consider and is a serious policy implication of your work is that providing healthcare generally, providing mental health care can really help people and can be cost effective in, in terms of increasing their wages and employment, decreasing their dependence on social supports. Are there any other policy implications or, or things that are at least worth discussing in the public sphere? Yeah, I think one thing that is important to keep in mind is that these costs are not costs just in terms of wages or, you know, reliance on social welfare programs. There are also costs that come from the fact that we might be missing on talent that might actually be very important for our labor markets and for our economy and society more broadly. And in fact, there is some evidence from psychology that seems to suggest that personality traits that are common among people with certain types of mental health conditions are also very much Mm -hmm. likely to be found among uh, successful entrepreneurs, for example, or or people who are very successful in the arts. Innovators. Innovators, yeah. Yeah. And so you might think that there might be people who have these types of personality traits and maybe they have a milder form of the condition or maybe they have a more severe form of the condition but get treated who make it 
you know, in, uh-huh. in, in business and, and are able to have a pretty big impact on the world. But there might be other people who yeah. don't get treated or that have um, maybe a more severe form of these conditions who yeah. instead don't make it. And their creativity never gets harnessed. Exactly. And we're, we're yep. missing off mm-hmm. on, on, on those people. You know, it's another yeah. source of a social cause for of mental health conditions, which I think sometimes is, yeah. is a bit overlooked. Yeah, I think, yeah, very overlooked. That's a really important point. Now, since our, our the theme of our podcast is, is about mental health in schools and specifically teachers, were you able to look much at how these penalties varied by profession or occupation in your study? We haven't looked too much at different types of occupations. Do you want to speculate at all? Maybe? Um, yes. Um, I, so, you know, I have thought about teachers and teachers' labor markets for a little while and I think pretty straightforward uh, implication of the results from this study, coupled with what we have seen in schools in the in the past two years, with starting from you know the beginning of the COVID era, is that, uh, as I said at the beginning, it is not just that mental health conditions can lead to worse career outcomes, but that negative shocks that happen on the job might also affect people's mental health conditions. And I think in the case of teachers, uh, this is very, very important to keep in mind. I feel like teachers have been put under an enormous amount of pressure during the past couple of years. We have been expecting them to do a job that is incredibly more difficult than uh, what they were doing uh, just a a few weeks back. And I feel like, you know, I have seen this in my own experience teaching MBAs at Yale. You might have experienced that too. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult. And it might be, I, I can only begin to imagine how difficult it might be for people who have to teach six years old or eight years old. And I think what's important to keep yep. in mind is that a worsening of teachers' mental health issues, as you know, we see in our paper, might lead to some of these people just leaving the profession. And I feel like in some states, we have already started to see Absolutely. a spike in retirement rates. So people are indeed leaving yes. for a variety of reasons that have to do with the safety issues as well as increased levels of stress that might make people feel yep. like it's just not worth it anymore and this might end up having absolutely uh, pretty big effects not only on people's lives and, and their health but also on the on the students because again we might be just losing talent on the way yeah and i think that that's the most severe outcome is teachers leave the profession but the other thing i guess that comes to mind then is even the teachers who stay might be less effective. Yes, absolutely. It's hard to really thrive if you yourself are suffering from stress and pressure and so Exactly. On. I just wanted to add that I mentioned the stress that people might be facing that's coming from their job all of a sudden becoming more difficult from one day to the mm-hmm. other. But lots of yeah. very challenging things are happening in people's lives because of health reasons. People are getting sick and people are experiencing a lot of issues in their own lives, which might also affect their mental health, which is something that mm-hmm. we, I feel like we can't forget about when we think about these issues. And especially when we think about the, yeah. how to tackle these issues and how to support these people. Yep, absolutely. And I guess that coming full circle to your study, economists sometimes think about wages as sort of measuring the productivity of a worker. And so lower wages might mean a a lower productivity worker. But in teaching, wages are are fairly set by experience and things like that. They're not fluctuating with teacher quality for the most part or teacher effectiveness for the most part. In some professions where wages are more rigid, there could be real performance changes due to mental health that don't show up in the data. And I mean, just from talking to teachers and principals for this podcast and offline as well, we've heard a lot of that, that even teachers who stayed didn't feel like they were at their best because they were distracted and dealing with so many other challenges, both in their own lives and and with their students' non-academic lives. It was hard to be a at your most effective during the past couple of years of the pandemic. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people have just been operating on survival mode, you know, just 
trying to stay afloat, essentially. And one thing yes. that's also important to keep in mind is that, as you said, for teachers, we can't really use wages as a measure of productivity because that's not how the labor market and the structure of teacher pay really works. Usually, right. we look at student outcomes to measure teacher quality. That is also going to be problematic mm -hmm. because a lot of states didn't have standardized tests this year because everything was happening remotely. So it's going to be really, really hard to measure the losses in terms of teaching quality, in terms of student learning right. that have occurred and perhaps haven't finished occurring, unfortunately, due to the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion. I enjoyed learning more about your work and hearing about the objective evidence that we have for the career costs of mental health. As we wrap up, is there any one last thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with in terms of how we should be thinking about mental health as the COVID-19 pandemic hopefully is winding down and as policymakers think more proactively and maybe reactively to the mental health issues that have been brought about by the pandemic? I think my one line that I would like to end with is that we really should aim at treating mental health the same way that we do with physical health especially for mm -hmm. uh, professions like teachers or educators more broadly. It is yep. extremely important, even in, in normal times, but particularly so in difficult mm -hmm. times like the ones we're living. And we just cannot treat yes. it as something that is secondary or that we're going to worry about if we have leftover resources. It, it is a first order issue that has to be in people's minds all the time, especially now. Absolutely. Well said, and that is a excellent ending point. This is a first-order issue that we need to deal with, and we have the resources to deal with. We just have to make it a priority. Exactly. Well, thanks again for coming on and, and sharing your knowledge and sharing your paper with us. The paper, again, is titled Career Effects of Mental Health. It's co-authored with Michael Dahl and Petra Moser. It's an NBR working paper right now. A link will be up on the website. Our guest in this episode has been Professor Barbara Biasi of the Yale University School of Management and also a faculty research fellow at NBR. Professor Biasi, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us thank today. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me.